You've reached Hoop and Holler, a Square One podcast on basketball and other shenanigans. Danny Green, I'm mad at Danny Green. I just want to thank everybody that's been in my corner during this time. With Reagan Griffin Jr. Reagan, you're the best, man. I'm the clamp guy. I am the Giannis Antetokounmpo of Lion Center. Eddie Sun. Probably won't get hired by, you know, ESPN anytime soon. Because <laughs> we don't got that clutch connection. And Julio Martinez. On uh, Giannis and the Bucks, I told you so, I told you so, I told you so. Please clap. It comes from at underscore underscore uh, KLU2 on Twitter. Bro, the fact that you knew there were two underscores before the to at underscore underscore KLU. He knows your that, Twitter. That means I'm tweeting it too much. But at, when it boils down, like, that's what we're here for is the yeah. basketball. Welcome to the latest episode of Hoop and Holler. I'm your host, Eddie Sun, joined, as always, by Julio Martinez and Reagan Griffin. Uh, took a little small hiatus for our uh, bi-weekly episode, or, or second episode of the week. Um, so, now regularly scheduled every Tuesday or Wednesday for listeners. Um, on this episode, we'll address Bradley Beal, like we do almost every episode. <laughs> um, we'll talk about the Utah Jazz and their uh, legitimacy or whether they should be considered a, a legitimate threat. But first, um, we just saw the finale of the Clippers and Nets game, arguably the two most talented teams in the league in each conference. Who's making that argument? Uh, everyone? A lot of people? You're not. I said talented. I didn't say best. But allow me to finish my point. The Nets pulled out a uh, back-and-forth game, 124-120. to 120. Um, The result, I mean, it was really good. I think the game itself was just pretty entertaining to watch considering it went back and forth um i guess first off any takeaways from this game it's i guess it's one of the more uh star-studded matchups of the year man i i just i just really 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 get a kick out of watching Kyrie uh Irving. Kyrie Irving. Go, he, bro. <laughs> and i i know i know it's coming every single game um that it just seems like every single game that i watch him in he, he just impresses me and i know what's coming I know what he can do. I know what he's about. And yet every single game that I watch him, he does something that just amazes me. And um, it's just super, super impressive to watch. I think a a key takeaway that that I do want to say about the Nets, um, aside from defense, which we will get to later, um, is that KD almost seems, I don't want to say lost sometimes, but I don't want... Uh, or as a Brooklyn Nets, if I was a Brooklyn Nets fan, I wouldn't want KD to be my, I don't want to say third best player, but be the third option. And I I know he's the most efficient one. He's the one that needs to take the least amount of shots to get to his, you know, so-called averages, but yet he's still your best player. You still want him to have the ball the most because he is the most efficient one. As much as I love Kyrie, obviously KD is much better. So that, that that's my one key kind of takeaway um, that that KD I feel like he needs to be involved a little more. It was interesting they made the decision to pull DeAndre Jordan from the starting lineup. They went with Jeff Green, so basically centerless. Um, the, I guess it's not really a takeaway, but something that just kind of humored me watching the game, less from an analysis standpoint, was that end sequence where they needed a bucket and it was literally just Kyrie Irving, Kevin Durant, and James Harden guarded by four Clippers on one side of the floor. They didn't even bring Joe Harris or Jeff Green. They were just like, you guys go back and play defense. We'll just be uh, a three-man squad. Like we're the Alabama Crimson Tide with 
Colin Sexton at the helm, but um, it, it was it's it's still kind of herky jerky. It, it's so weird to me that I look at this Brooklyn team and I came on this podcast and said I felt like they were going to be a dominating force, but game in and game out they're in these dog fights. And granted, this is a good team to be a dog fight against, but. It almost feels like they kind of just play to their competition. And you guys know how I feel. I said it all last year about the Clippers. You cannot be a team that turns it off and then turns it on when it's time to play. Come playoff time, that's never going to work out in your favor. There's always going to be a team that had it on already that's going to be able to punch you in the mouth. So I'm starting to have a little bit of reservations about my claim on the Brooklyn team being as dominant as I thought they would be just because... Um, they don't. They haven't really seemed to turn it on yet, and I don't know whether that's chemistry issues and they're still figuring things out, or you know if they just don't have a care for the regular season. But something needs to be figured out quickly. To to that point, for me, it, it's more of a. These are especially with Harden, James Harden, and Kevin Durant. Those are two MVP caliber players, and then Kyrie Kyrie Irving's obviously you know a superstar in his own right. You know, they, they, they're so used to being the top dog on their teams that, you know, all I have to do is go get a bucket. That, that's what KD did when he was on the Warriors, you know, in, in his last years. That's what Kyrie did to a large, you know, extent last year in the few games he played and when he was in Boston. Um, and that's what James Harden did. He went ISO all day, all game, all year long with the Houston Rockets. And so they, they just have to find... Steve Nash has to find, I don't want to say different roles, but different things that they can do on the court when, they, when they're when they not on the ball because they're just all so used to being on the ball. And, uh, you know, I, I think what Eddie brought up is a good point, maybe putting Harden in more pick-and-roll situations. Harden has obviously taken up the mantle as the distributor on the team. Um, he's averaging a lot of assists, and, and, you know, he's obviously the best passer on the team. And I would say probably has – definitely has the most high, you know, the highest IQ on the team. Um, but Steve Nash at the end of the day has just has to put them in different roles where they're not just standing around and um, th- them as players just have to get used to it because they're just so used to the opposite. So, so I feel like, I mean, this is a good segue to talk about their defense. And I think it's interesting because you guys bring up um, perhaps some clunky issues some kind of continuity issues with their offense but since the James Harden trade they've not only been the best offensive team in the league um they would have been the best offensive team ever Mm. and on the flip side they're not only the worst defensive team in the league they would profile or be projected as the worst defensive team in in the NBA's history so I mean we're talking about literally polar opposites on you know the two ends of the court here but so let's talk about the defense though because um, this is something that is going to take a lot more uh, soul searching for them to figure out because the offense can come and go given their talent, but the defense, I mean, there's going to be some need to be I mean, some real patchwork. There. That that doesn't make I mean, sense to me. How can they be the worst of all time? I can get bad. I can get below average. Worst of all time. I mean, to be fair, it, it is a what six game sample or what ten game sample, right? Yeah, something like that. Yeah. But still, let, let me let me let, let me ask you this, Eddie. Don't don't you appreciate this? You're the oh yeah, lean into your strength. This is this is like offensive. <laughs> this is three offensive juggernauts. Maybe the three, uh, you know, three of the most, you know, three of the best offense players of all time. 
Just do what you're good this, at. This, you know what? This, this is literally a, a, this is like the most egregious example of what you're talking about. If, We're going to be the best that, of all time and the worst of all time in the other thing, bro. And guess what? They're, they're you know, not bad. I mean, they've been more than not bad. But, you know, if they really did want to play this both sides game, they would have made Kyrie their sixth man and started Bruce Brown or something. Oh, nah. But, but the thing <laughs> is, that was your always your contingency, though, to be fair, is that Though that's for the teams who aren't contending. The contenders should be looking to fill exactly. up holes. Um, contenders should be good enough to be um, like great at either both ends or so dominant on one end and serviceable on the other end where, you know, that's kind of the formula for a championship. Yeah, so so the issue with me on the, on the de- defensive end for them is that they switch everything, but they're not... Um, I, I guess what the the prototypical switchable team would be more of the Milwaukee Bucks. You know, you got five guys who can really play D. You got the Clippers, maybe you you know you have a shot blocker and Ibaka, two strong wing defenders, and Pat Bev. You know, guarding the point guard position. The Brooklyn Nets switch everything, but it's because they're being lazy and they do it so lazily. When you switch everything, you still have to show hands. You gotta, you know, you gotta play up. You gotta play certain angles. When they switch, it's like, oh, get high side. I'll get low side. You know, just just go over there. And then Harden always gets beat on, gets beat on back cuts. The only thing he can do serviceably on the defensive end is, you know, take take a take a shoulder in the chest and guard. You know, when when somebody's posting him up. But th- that's their issue, to me. It, it's effort, and it's so simple. That I'm not saying that effort is going to make them the best defensive team in the league, but it's certainly not going to, you know, make them be, you know, the worst defensive team in the league, what they are now. So all they have to do is put in some effort. And th- this is why I say, too, you, you can't I'm, I'm this will be the last time I say it on this podcast for today, at least you can't turn that off and on because those are the sorts of habits that you work yourself into. Or you work yourself out of because come playoff time, there's like you you know it, Julio. You get in those moments where you're fatigued, you're gonna go back to what you did and what you remember doing. So if you remember being fatigued and saying I'm gonna take these three def- defensive possessions off, I'm not gonna be as early on this rotation as I could be. I'm not gonna be as aware on this side of the court as I should be. That habit's gonna manifest itself in the worst moments possible. That there's no way around that. You have to work those habits into your game early, or else they're not gonna be there when you need them come playoff time. That's what concerns me about this Brooklyn Nets team. I'd agree that effort is a big part of it. Um, I'd probably say it's like seventy five percent of the defensive problems, but at the same time, um, just personnel wise, they're they're gonna be lacking in defensive talent. Yes. You know, like they they just don't have any stopper, no rim rim protector, a real like yeah. threat as a rim protector, no perimeter lockdown guys. So, I mean, part of it is they do have to think tactically, and and this is something the coaching staff needs to look into. And I tweeted this out earlier on the Square One Hoops account. Um, shout out the socials, but um. They can't guard everything at once, especially given, you know, what their personnel is. So they have to prioritize and key in on one thing. And whether that's preventing easy shots at the rim, whether that's preventing three-point looks, you know, they just have to pick your poison a little bit. And to me, they have the sort of roster um, where they can kind of go more out on the three-point shots and try to limit three-point looks and, you know, try to do more work there. And if you end up 
you know, giving up more layups by a byproduct or, you know, you try to maybe rely on DeAndre Jordan as, as a bit of an anchor more. You know, like you just kind of have to live with that because, again, this team, you can't ask for too much given their personnel. So, you know, like, they just have to, to prioritize to one me, thing. Yeah, to me, the people the people who say, oh, go get JaVale McGee, and JaVale McGee is definitely a better shot blocker, rim protector than DeAndre Jordan at this point in in their careers. But the people who say that and go get a lockdown perimeter defender – that's the issue, though. You almost have four like players who you have to play in key moments. That's obviously the three superstars and Joe Harris. None of those guys are very, very good defenders. So in those key moments, what, you can only have one good defender that you can maybe go out and get in the, on the market? But then in crucial moments, are you better off playing Jeff Green who can stretch the floor or JaVale McGee who becomes a liability on the offensive end? So going out on the on the buyout market and, and getting these names isn't really going to help in my opinion. To me, it's what Eddie said. It's on coaching to develop more schemes, maybe try out some zone um, and, and different you know variations of that um, and, and effort, obviously. All right. I guess we should move on to Bradley Beal because, again, Julio loves talking about Bradley Beal. But I feel like it's definitely taken a turn now where you see more momentum behind the people who are saying free Bradley Beal. Um, a lot more speculation that he is actually on the market. But apparently, um, Sham Sharani reported that he still wants to ride it out in Washington. You know, he still wants to see, you know, this Washington franchise led by him succeed. Um I don't know why, and I'm sure Julio, you feel the same way. So I'll just throw it to you first. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna keep this short because if Bradley Beal is part, if part of him is doing this and saying these things because he doesn't want to become this villain in Washington, doesn't want to turn his back on fans, doesn't want to be, you know, I, I I don't know whatever the case may be. If that's part of his reasoning, then you don't have to worry about that. Because obviously the Wizards organization, whether it's getting you know Russell Westbrook or building the type of team that they've built around him, they've been, they've shown you know not only to him but to the fan base and to the entire NBA that they're wasting his career. No one would hold you know him requesting a trade against him. I've seen in the comment section, you know, on Wizards social media, we need to let Bradley you know feel free. Like we're we're just wasting his career at this point, and, and no one's gonna get mad at you. And if if it's his kind of uh, uh, arrogance, I, I I don't even want to use arrogance, but you know, if it's about I want to build this around me, then that's kind of selfish. And I, I don't I love Bradley Beal as a player, and I think he's not that type of dude to be like that. But if you want to win a chip, and you say you're about winning as much, and you mean that then obviously you have to go elsewhere. It's just not going to happen in Washington, and you're just being unreasonable. So it's it's on him anymore. It's on him now, and I don't feel bad for him anymore if he keeps this up. I will say, you know, who cares if Bradley Beal pisses off all 12 of the Washington Wizards fans? Like that, I don't care. But – in all seriousness, not, not you coming for small market teams. Like hey man, I've been to FedEx for There's a, there's a lot of support there, but all seriousness, when I when I think about Bradley Beal, I'm just confused at this point because 
I guess maybe it might have gotten overblown some of the body language he was showing on the court the other night, but that looked like a real, um, I don't know, a flashpoint to me. He was, he was being extra. Right. Was it was like, and, that, that's, and at that point, I was talking to you about it, Eddie, and, and you were saying, well, you know, perhaps he doesn't want to make a public statement and that can be respectable. But to me, by showing that sort of body language on the court, that in itself is a public statement of, of resentment towards the organization. But then for him to turn around and say, well, I still want to be here. Now I'm left confused because do you want to be there? Because you're not looking, I mean, your play, obviously, the dude's putting 40 point games together like it's nothing so and they even won that game but still just that sort of body language and again it could be media things getting blown up out of proportion but you can't get caught looking like that sitting away from your teammates during timeouts and you know not participating in the play not being engaged in the offense or the defensive end you can't get caught looking like that so what I, I guess, you know, who the hell am I? But what I need from Bradley Beal is a consistent messaging, right? Are you going to be here? Are you going to be engaged? Are you going to be part of this organization? Are you going to have faith? Are you going to trust them to do right by you in the long run? The question remains whether you should be doing that. But if that is your plan to do that, then let your play reflect that at all times. Um, and again, the dude's been dropping a bunch of points, but there's times where he hasn't looked engaged on the court. So that's where my concern is. Um perhaps he has faith there have been like flurries of maybe Masai Ujiri on his way to Washington maybe they throw the bag at him um maybe they're all willing to offer part ownership for Masai Ujiri to come into town but you know I'm with you Julio if I'm in Bradley Beal's shoes I have little to no faith in that organization to uh put me on a pedestal and, and you know build a team around me that's going to be good enough right um you go yeah, ahead. a bunch of a bunch of good young pieces around me good pieces Oh, here you That's go. not going to win. That's not going to win, Bradley Beal. And, and as much as I love Bradley, you, you know, and his kind of talent on the court, he can't be the best player on a championship team. No. That's just not Bradley Beal. And, and, let's and, at be, this point in, and at this point in Washington, what, you think KD's going to come back home? <laughs> Hell, come, man, come on. Let, let's be fair about it. Maybe Bradley Beal is perfectly content with dropping 35 points a game, being on a team that's going to – flurry on the mid to, you know, just outside of the playoffs to just inside of the playoffs, year in and year out, getting his bag. Maybe he's perfectly fine with that. And if that's the case, all credit to him, all power to him. He gonna have a, he's going to have a great career. He'll probably make the Hall of Fame off the number he's putting up. But oh, yeah. if that's not your objective, right, you have, something has to be done about it. So I, I guess where I'm at right now in regards to the Bradley Beal situation, I'm just left confused because there's some mixed signals coming from there. Yeah, and the thing is, whether he wants to win or not, he doesn't seem like he's enjoying himself in Washington. So if I'm Bradley Beal, obviously, you know, get me out of there. But on the flip side, if I'm Washington, like, I don't see why I don't, uh, you know, try to get the most return for Bradley Beal now while I can. Um, they're one of the worst teams in the league. Bradley Beal is already playing his best basketball of his career. You can't ask for much more from him. It's not going anywhere. This team is not going to make the playoffs they might sniff a play in it if things really break right so you know like why not trade Bradley Beal dangle him on the market and it's interesting because a Warriors beat writer Anthony Slater recently wrote a piece about like the possibility of Bradley Beal on the Warriors and what that would look like um so that so that's kind of a sign that you know the Warriors front office is sending like some signals to you know the local beat people to you know maybe throw something out there see see what the public reaction is but I'm like 100% on that train now, you know, maybe because Julio got me convinced or something. But, you know, if you're the Warriors, like, I don't care. Like, go get Bradley Beal. It would, ju- it mean, would just be such beautiful basketball if he yeah. came to the Warriors. But, 
you know, I mean, knowing the Warriors organization, they want to, you know, develop James Wiseman or whatever, whatever, whatever. But, you know, like, go I ahead and the way you go that. ahead. and I hate the way. You, why'd you say it like that? Whatever, whatever. Because whatever. I want them to maximize their win now window. Yes. And especially Steph is a superstar. Like, there's again, I said this a couple episodes ago. There's no other superstar in the league that will tolerate mediocrity like Steph is right now. And that's plainly because Steph wants to be more loyal and wants to be more respectable to a franchise than other superstars will be. But they're flat out disrespecting him by surrounding him with, you know, Kelly Oubre or whatever. So, you know, like, go out and make a big splash. Make something happen. He's really the yeah. only disgruntled superstar available on the market now. I don't care if you're the Milwaukee Bucks, the Denver Nuggets, uh, or the top two teams that I always mention, the Warriors and the Miami Heat. Do what you can to go win now. Like, and it's just... This is very frustrating to me when I see teams almost refusing, like with this Steph situation, F James Wiseman, F Andrew Wiggins, F the the top pick that you're going to get from Minnesota uh, uh, in this upcoming draft. You have to win now with Steph. You can't give it, oh, well, you know, James Wiseman in three years is going to be a top five center in this league. By that point, we're gonna cut they that might out. have Let's another injury. <laughs> Steph is going to be aged, and Draymond is probably going to be out the league. So, c- come on. Come on now. Come on. Let, okay, let, so let's get this going, and let, let's solve our problems. Come I, on. I can get on that train in saying that James Wiseman doesn't exactly fit the timeline of what the Warriors have. Um, but y'all know how I feel about James Wise, and that's besides the point. Here's what I'll say. If I'm the Lakers, I can offer you Taylor Horton Tucker. I can offer you Kyle Kuzma. I can offer you Alex Caruso. And I can offer you 20... KCP. KCP. I can offer you our... And a future first. And our 2090 first round pick. (laughs) (laughs) Send them our way. That's all you. But But uh, seriously, though, like, the ghost of David Stern can return to the NBA podium. Tell people that the top three protections on the Minnesota pick are being wiped off because Minnesota's so poorly run that he's just going to tell them that it doesn't matter. Rig the lottery for the Warriors to get the number one pick and pick Cade Cunningham. I don't care. Like Trade those assets away for Bradley Beal because the objective is to maximize winning around Steph. Because I don't care what player you pick, you know what the 2021 20, pick is, what James Wiseman becomes, they're not going to be as good as Steph. You know, like... Like 99.9%, they're not going to be as good as Steph. So the objective, again, is to maximize the potential of winning while you have the chance now. And, I mean, not to go further down in this Bradley Beal trade speculation, but, again, if it does happen, make it happen now. Exactly. And, you know, I've talked about this with you guys with a tweet I I sent to the group chat one time. It's almost like some fans will rather be, I don't want to say mediocre, but, you know, uh, uh a consistent first-round exit in the playoffs every single year or for a decade rather than winning one championship and being, like, garbage for eight years. No, I you mean, some to- some fans will act like that, but they don't know the taste. Of, like No fan who's won a championship would tell you they'd rather be a playoff team. Anyone who's tasted the sweet joy, the ecstasy <laughs> that one can associate with seeing your team hoist the Larry O'Brien trophy into the sky as the team color confetti falls around. No one who's experienced that will tell you, yeah, I'm cool with just being a playoff exit. You know what will tell you that? Memphis Grizzlies yeah. fans. But, you know, <laughs> I'm telling you that. Like that, that and, re- anyway. and, and really quickly, people have to understand the danger, the freaking threat that Steph, Bradley Beal, and Clay Thompson would be on the offensive end. That would actually go insane. That would be my favorite team to watch. 
Mm. No, definitely. And speaking of teams that are content with uh, disappearing after playing in the first round of the playoffs every year, let's talk about the Utah Jazz. Ooh, um, low blow, low blow. <laughs> but seriously, uh, they were the top team in the West just a couple days ago before they lost to the Nuggets. But um, clearly a very well-oiled machine right now. Top five on both offense and defense. Uh, Mike Conley currently leads the league in total plus minus. Um, Shout out. Joe Ingles is shooting like 48% from three or something. They have like six different players shooting damn near 40% from three. The best three-point shooting team in the league. Uh, a great defensive team. Um, the question is not that whether they're good or not. I think we know that they're solid. They can. They can. They have the potential of being good to great. But the question is whether teams like the Utah Jazz. Should we be calling them legitimate threats to challenge a top, you know, contender now in this season? Like, should should we call teams like them or a team like, for example, Indiana in the Eastern Conference, for example? Um, you know, like, should we be rewarding jumping the gun to call them contenders, I say, or threats? And this is something that Reagan brought up a few yeah. days ago, just to give him credit for it. You, you you cannot honestly call teams like the Utah Jazz legitimate threats and contenders. I feel like every year in the NBA, there's always one team that pops up, and you know whether it's a hot streak or a hot season, they end up with a really, really, really great record. A team that you know jumps to mind is the Atlanta Hawks with Jeff Teague, Al Horford. It was Paul Millsap. Who who else was it? Uh, uh, Damari Carroll, Damari Carroll, Jeff. Uh, you know, there's there's Jeff always team. those teams that always pop up for a season or two or for a few months, and you just can't call them, you know, seriously legitimate threats because the Larry O'Brien Trophy always, you know, gets handed to a team with a true superstar, and maybe Donovan Mitchell becomes that one one time or one day. Um, but he's just not that. They don't have multiple superstars, or even one, in my opinion. So you you just can't call them legit threats. So here's what it's here's what I see from my vantage point is that it seems like no one will ever acknowledge any of these teams built in this mold as a legit threat until it happens. And that's like I get it, right? Because it's hard to envision a team like the Utah Jazz knocking off a Lakers or knocking off a, a Clippers, right? Um, but it almost seems unfair to not acknowledge teams who have proven themselves as legit threats and say, you know, there's there's a feasible like if at the end of the year, it wouldn't be that shocking if, say, you know, the third seed Denver Nuggets knocked off the second seed Los Angeles Clippers last year. Did anyone acknowledge the Nuggets as a legit threat? Hell no. Nah. Not until they actually knocked off the Clippers. And even in the waning moments of that game, it still felt like, well, this is the Clippers t- game to, or the Clippers series to have. Even when they were taking them to six, seven games, it felt like it was always the Clippers until it wasn't. So I guess the point that I was trying to drive at when I brought up this question to Eddie earlier this week is like, at what point can we acknowledge these teams and say, okay, although they're not our favorite, although they're not, you know, the team that makes the most sense to us as w- what would win the championship, can we say like they have a shot? They have a shot because we have to acknowledge that other teams have a shot at beating these top tier teams. Realistically, no. Yeah. Realistically, they don't. Were, have were, a shot. were, were the they Dallas Mavericks a, a threat? The Dallas Mavericks weren't a threat until they actually knocked off the Miami Heat, and that was the last like superstarless team to win the uh, the the championship. Uh, I would say Dirk, Dirk Nowitzki's Dirk, out of Dirk was superstar good. in that year. Would we have called Dirk Nowitzki a superstar? I feel that like the, in hindsight, year, we might be looking at him as a superstar. 
all star sure, but when we when we think about the superstars and what we paint that as as in today's NBA, Dirk Nowitzki at that point in time, I'm not sure had reached the level of Kawhi Leonard, of LeBron James currently, of Kevin Durant. You know what I mean? I would say he was an all star level, a high level all star, but I don't think anyone was looking at Dirk Nowitzki and saying this is the guy that I need to have as my franchise cornerstone. He's more of a superstar than than Donovan Mitchell. Sure, that's what I know. Sure, and and, and I just I just can't envision that. You, you can you can be right. One you can't envision that, it, right? That's that's more, a, I guess that's what I'm getting you at. Be, you can't envision it, but you have to acknowledge the possibility. You you can you can be one team that may be more of a contender than you, like the Clippers, or like the Nuggets beat the Clippers. But once you know, you know after that, you still got to play Braun. After that, you still got to play the best out of the Eastern Conference. That you know, there's multiple levels to this. A team like that just, uh, in my opinion, just can't do it. And when you get in critical moments in the playoffs, refs always lean towards the star player. Hmm. It's star treatment. And when you give LeBron calls, when you give KD calls, when you give Kyrie, James Harden, all these calls. I mean, those are key differences in games that just can't be ignored, and they just don't have a god. I love their team construction. The Utah Jazz from last year, uh, listeners know that they, you know, I expected them to be a serious dark horse, but they're a dark horse for a reason, not a contender. This, this is, this is will be the last thing I will say because I want to hear your opinion on it, Eddie. But it almost a lot of this just feels very narrative driven, in that we as an NBA fan base decide before the season who we think okay the nets the lakers the clippers perhaps the 76ers these are the four anyone else not a shot in hell if they do get it it's a fluke i feel like we decide that before the season and then going into the season as things develop and as things fluctuate we really don't give credence to teams who prove that they're capable of perhaps knocking off even though it might be a slim chance right it might be a 20 percent chance if you played out that series between the nuggets and the clippers a hundred times they might win 10 of those series but it's still a shot we can't not acknowledge these teams like the jazz like the who's who's another team in the east that's killing it right now uh, like the uh, indiana. indiana pacers right we can't not acknowledge them as a team that could potentially usurp some of these contenders we have to acknowledge them as threats that's all that's all i'm saying i think for me i'm more on the train of I'll call you a threat. I'll call you a, a real deal when you become a threat, when you become a real deal. But I don't think also that should diminish away from how good a team like Denver was last year or how good a team like Utah is this year. And that's kind of what I think you're talking about with the narratives, Reagan, where, you know, it kind of sucks that, you know, we think of like Utah as like a cute story or, or Denver like a cute story and, and nothing much more. And that kind of sucks because I love what Utah is doing this year. Like I watch their games and the execution and the play scheming and, you know, just the individual shot making by the players they have on their roster is exquisite. Like it's great. Like Mike Conley is playing beautiful basketball. Um, You know, Bogdanovich looks great. Mitchell looks great. Um, You know, it's like they look like a great team and they're incredibly fun to watch and root for and you want them to succeed even though in the back of your mind you know that you know if they play the lakers they're probably over in five or six games um but again like i i just wish it was a thing where we know that some teams are better than others but that doesn't mean we have license to clown on the utah jazz because they might lose in the you know first or second round again you know it's just there should be somewhere of a middle ground and i'm not saying there's no middle ground um, I think people who really do appreciate watching basketball, you know, can appreciate 
good teams for being good teams, great teams for being great teams. But when we're talking about how we address, you know, the topic as a whole, it's like, well, here are the here are the real deals and everyone else is just like, you know, an, an addendum in the back of the book. And, you know, that's kind of unfortunate, I think. Mm. Yeah, that that's what NBA Twitter will do to you. <laughs> Pretty much. Yep. You have anything else to add? I was thinking about this. Who and obviously the Dallas Mavericks are struggling right now, but if the Dallas Mavericks played the 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 Utah Jazz in a playoff series, are you still leaning superstar Luka or better team? Utah in a heartbeat. Yes, this I mean, year, Utah as shown in the regular season, Utah Jazz. Utah just diced up Dallas by literally running pick and roll every play after play, and they couldn't figure out how to defend it. So yeah, Utah in a heartbeat. That that's without question. Because although Luca is probably the best player on the court, you still have four other dudes out there that got to do their job. And as, as a unit, Utah Jazz functions like night. It's, it's night and day. It's, I don't, we have to have we have to allot some time for that at some point on a future episode. Like what the fuck's going on in Dallas right now? It's kind of yeah. It's not good. It's not good. All right, I guess that'll do it for this episode of Hoop and Holler. Thanks for tuning in. As always, um, check out our social media on Instagram, which we haven't been updating much, but the Twitter is always popping um, at SQR1 SQR1 Hoops for both platforms. Um, We'll see you next time for our next episode. This has been the Hoop and Holler podcast.